0: From the Credit Union National Association, this is the CUNY News Podcast. Credit Union people. Credit Union ideas.
1: If there's no education like adversity, Steve Schmitz and Eric Bruin should receive advanced degrees. Schmitz, President-CEO at First Community Credit Union in Jamestown, North Dakota, and Bruin, President-CEO at Desert Valley's Federal Credit Union in Ridgecrest, California, led their institutions through dire financial straits and learned many useful lessons along the way. I'm Bill Merrick, Deputy Editor for CUNA News. In this episode of the CUNA News Podcast, Schmitz and Bruin take us through how they tackled tough times and rejuvenated their credit unions. They're among 31 credit union leaders named as 2021 credit union rock stars by Credit Union Magazine. Sponsored by Pfizer, the Credit Union Rockstars program recognizes outstanding credit union professionals and volunteers from a wide range of disciplines for their exceptional creativity, innovation, and passion. We'll start with Steve Schmitz. I was reading from your nomination form that you grew up on a dairy farm in North Dakota. Can you tell me a little bit what that was like and how you think that shaped you into who you are today?
0: Yeah, we did grow up on a dairy farm in central North Dakota. We were a fairly large farm back then. And that day we were milking about 90 cows. And that was a big operation back in the 70s and 80s. It taught you a lot of work ethic from the time I was in eighth grade and on. I had to be up at 515 every single morning to uh, milk, including school days. You just got up and got it done before school. You came home after school and you went back at it again until uh, seven o'clock that night. So I would say it really did a good job of making you appreciate the value of work. My joke, standing joke at the credit union is when I left for college, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I only knew that I didn't want to milk cows anymore. Yeah. So uh, it was kind of my motivation for uh, leaving and going off to college. Like I said, there's a lot of value things in it, but uh, it was not a fun job and a lot of work. But Probably wouldn't trade it either, so.
1: And you were in the, uh, the Air Force, too. Can you tell me a little bit about that, what you did and, and what impact it had on you?
0: When I went off to North Dakota State University, about halfway through my time there, decided to join the ROTC, Air Force ROTC, with the intention that I would get a commission as a second lieutenant in the Air Force upon graduation, which is what happened. I ended up being a missile launch officer, so um, basically I was... The person uh, went underground and uh, sat alerts. Uh, We'd go out on alerts about eight times a month, 24 hours long, and sit there. And we literally had the keys that if we were told, we would launch uh, the ICBMs. I did that for about four and a half years. And I also worked with GPS, um, was a second lieutenant and first lieutenant. And then I ended up as a 97. I got out as a captain. I would say, you know, the main thing I learned in the Air Force, especially working with other officers, was the quality of leadership. You learned a lot of different leadership styles. There was a lot of good leaders. There was a lot of leaders. I think I found the ones that I appreciated the most were the ones that really looked at our squadron as a team. And, uh, you know, they worked with us to accomplish goals. Once I came into the civilian world and even in the Air Force, I tended to try at least to emulate the ones that were more of a team atmosphere, and uh, use their staff and their people you know, for the greater good of the organization rather than self-serving.
1: When you took over the credit union as CEO, it was struggling. Can you tell me a little bit about what it was like when you took over the credit union and how you tried to stem delinquencies and charge-offs?
0: Yeah, I actually became the CEO at the end of 2009, and we had uh, turned the credit union around quite a bit. But when I came, I think what you're referring to is in 2002, our credit union was hemorrhaging. um, And and we were literally on life support from the NCUA. We had special actions in there. Basically, the entire senior level staff was replaced by the NCUA. They gave us three months at a time to keep the credit union to make it better. They would literally come in every three months and see if we had made it better. So I was asked by um, the new CEO if I would come to the headquarters and head up the loan department. I was just two years into my time at the credit union. Probably should have said no, because I was in, it was baptism by fire. We just started tackling the problems, which were, I'm not trying to do everything at once. Another statement I use a lot, you know, is the old old adage, Rome wasn't built in a day, and we're not going to fix all this in one day. So we just started, you know, taking loans. You couldn't really afford to do them one at a time. So sometimes it was 10 at a time, but um, we just started doing the actions that, credit unions needed to do to improve your drink. So we started having regular collection meetings. We stopped the bleeding, first of all. So what was causing the problem? It was about two years where we were really struggling. And then all of a sudden, we just started kind of turning the corner. We got our staff to really buy into what we needed to do to survive. You know, when everybody's worried about losing their job, they listen really well. And so the ones that survived the purge, so to speak, they were ready to listen and hear about another way to do it. It wasn't all easy. There was times you had people challenge you. People thought you, know, you should do things a different way. We're not acting like a credit union. We should be giving these people money. And it's like, well, you know, credit unions are to help the underserved, but they're not for charity. You need to give people money when they are likely to pay it back. It might not be the most profitable loan. It might not be the biggest loan, but they literally, you have to be 99.5% sure was the number I used to them. You have to be 99.5% sure they will pay you back. And people started buying into that. And within two years, we were significantly better. And those three-month visits became one-year annual visits. We worked our way up you know, to becoming a camel three and a two and even slightly better than that for a bit. But it was a major turnaround for our credit union because we were literally at 6% net worth. And if we would have went down another five, 10 basis points, we'd have probably been conserved. So uh, we were right on that bubble for about a year, year and a half and uh, learned a lot about people, about members. Uh, not all of them are honest. You always want to believe everybody, but when the majority of the people you're dealing with there, when I was dealing with those bad loans, majority of them were either dishonest and, or had an agenda that wasn't in the best interest of the credit union. So you learn a lot about people and And as we started getting better people working there, as we started getting stronger loan policies and started working with better members, it just took
1: off. What was the cause of the financial distress?
0: In the late 90s, North Dakota, uh, we do a lot of agricultural loans in Jamestown at First Community. And the late 90s were a difficult time for a lot of the farmers in that area. And when you have problem loans and things aren't going right, you need to face the problem, you need to talk to the person, you talk to the member, but the, some of the employees and the members alike did exactly the opposite. They avoided communication, and so the loan officers were just extending credit and giving more credit, um, even though they hadn't paid back the prior years. So the thing that really changed things there was, that helped us at the same time, was the farm economy got better, but we started facing those problems, communicating with the members. That helped us through it quite a bit.
1: Were there any certain specific memories that stood out during this time for you?
0: I learned that big numbers can make you numb. I'm saying it a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but we had so many poor credits that uh, I remember talking with uh, our attorney one day and we said, well, this isn't going to be a very big charge-off. It's only $150,000. And to give you an idea, I mean, we were dealing with a lot of seven-digit loans, and all of a sudden, we had one that was only one hundred and fifty thousand, and that's how much credit we was going to lose. on it. it just kind of stood out to me is that you're in another world, and people will become numb. And I've seen it even since then. You know, where MSRs, for instance, will get really casual with large amounts of money. You know, they're giving cash out every day, every day, every day, and all of a sudden, you know, instead of giving somebody a thousand dollars. They give them $2,000 and they're just kind of casual. They're not counting it. You say, how could somebody do that? You get numb to it. So that really stood out as people became numb to issues and they were willing to just turn a blind eye, look away. And uh, you know that was definitely a downside of it. From the outside of it, I would say what stood out with me was the dedication of the employees we had to the credit union and to the members. And that's where we had to tweak their thought process is that members can be great, but they do need to pay it back. But at the end of the day, our employees were very loyal to the credit union and they wanted the credit union to succeed. They weren't there just to collect the paycheck. So that stood out for me as well, because of all the staff that made it through that initial purge, and it was about 70% that were still there. Some of them are still there today. So um, they might've been in the problem but they weren't necessarily the cause of the problem. They, you know, the leaders above them were helping them, facilitating make bad choices. But the, the end of the day, the staff was very loyal to the credit union. And um, like I said, many are still there today, 20 years later.
1: What advice would you offer other credit union leaders who are struggling right now?
0: The success that FCCU has had has been because of the type of people we have hired and the type of people we employ. I used to think... That we had an advantage because we were always the largest credit union in the state. We really weren't large in the big scope of things, but you know, when we were two hundred million, the next closest was one hundred and fifty million, and when we were three hundred million, the next closest was about two hundred million. And so I, I used to think, well, we're bigger, that's why we're successful. And then you know, it dawned on me maybe I don't know seven eight years ago that the reason we're successful isn't because we were bigger. It was because of the people we were hiring and. Uh, in about 2006, I would say we really made a, started making a concerted effort to hire people who other times we said were maybe too expensive for the credit union. You know, they, they couldn't afford them. We took a chance on some and, and our credit union really started moving forward quickly during that time. So I would say surround yourself with excellent staff. You're only as good as your team. You know, if you're the CEO, if you don't have a strong executive team, you will not be successful. You cannot do it all yourself. And uh, you don't need to be the smartest one in the room. You just need to have the smartest one in the room working for you. Nobody on your team will be the smartest in everything. That's why you work on each other's strengths. And we don't want the same people on the team. We want people who bring different skill sets to our team, to our meetings. So we're intentional about that in looking for different people. And sometimes it causes conflict. Sometimes You know, you'll see this person feels it's this way, and the other person who has a different point of view looks at it. But you know, we'll allow some conflict in the meetings, and because a lot of times, good comes from it. You know, at the end of the day, we leave the room. Our goal is always, and the marching order is always the same: is it might not be your idea, it might not have came out exactly the way you want it, but we all walk out as a team and work at it. Get good people around you. Get different strengths. Get people that complement each other that aren't like each other. Get people that aren't like you get people that challenge you. It's okay if they push back sometimes, you know, you want to just say yes, but at the end of the day, it makes
1: you better when they don't. And here's Eric Bruin. How are things going for you in California?
2: Well, I'll save you from all the wonderful political discussions about what's wrong with California, but I'll just mm-hmm. say the credit union is doing fantastic. I'm thrilled to be uh, in the beautiful rural community that I'm in. It's certainly been a, an interesting two years our journey has because we are, you know, let's see, this would be about 14 days after, two years plus 14 since the earthquakes, which were really our first triggering event. Little background, in July 4th and July 5th, 2019, there was two back-to-back earthquakes in California, 6.4 and a 7.1 magnitude earthquakes largest earthquakes in the last uh, 30 years in California. They were back-to-back days and they were in the heart of my community. So Ridgecrest, California was the epicenter. And so you're talking about a community that took literally a one-two punch when you consider a six-four and a seven-one back-to-back and then COVID coming nine months later. Just a, a series of punches, but through it all, that's what I've loved is, is it's actually been really it's been very good for our credit union, but more importantly, it's been really good
1: for changing the course of our community. What did you learn from the earthquake crisis? Any lessons that you took away from that experience?
2: No matter how much disaster preparation you can do, it's never enough. There's so many things that you assume that you're well prepared for, but then you're surprised by simple things that you, you weren't prepared for. Things like just basic getting the building inspected or getting after the fact, how do you, how do you justify to, you know, is your own eyes proof enough that the building is safe to occupy in a true emergency situation. And this is what probably the biggest lesson we learned for us as a rural credit union is if a similar event had occurred in Los Angeles and we had been affected on a power grid basis, it would have been 72 to 96 hours before we were Restored simply because Los Angeles, the largest urban area, is going to be where the first responders go. So, like for our credit union, we are um, at the end of this fall, we're doing a uh, half million dollar energy revamp, solar, uh, EV chargers, battery backups, redundance. And that's all kind of a lesson right out of the earthquake, which is. Well, great. We were the central location, so we got an immediate response. But what happens if we are the ancillary impact to the more immediate population center? That's kind of what we said. We found a vulnerability there. The second thing, and I'm a big advocate for this, is advocacy can change lives. And I'll share that story with you. Is, you know, Like I said, we had the earthquakes and we had COVID. We are a military town. 83% of our population works or is employed through China Lake Naval Base, or 83% of our payroll. And it was substantially damaged by the 7.1 earthquake. And our elected officials, which I was not at that point in time, worked with our congressmen, our senators, all of the people in our advocacy channels to secure base reconstruction financing. And we secured it two weeks before we went into COVID shutdown. And I always tell people, just imagine the world you'd be in today if you didn't have the advocacy resources that had worked years and years and prepped and were ready to respond. You could have been in the middle of COVID and coming out of it with a different presidential agenda, a different political agenda, a different anything. You could see an entire town just swallowed by a single event if you don't have advocacy. You ever want to talk about why advocacy is so important for all sides of the coin in your personal life, as well as in your community,
1: as well as in your credit union. That's my story is a great one. Seems like you've had a, a lot of experience with tough times. I'm just reading about your, your credit union and your nomination. Your credit union was in kind of a tough spot when you uh, became CEO.
2: Yeah. It was I mean, it was the best opportunity I could have asked for. I'm a second generation. So my dad was a, a credit union CEO. So I grew up around credit unions and have a, deep passion for the movement. And the story goes is, you know, I, I, I was presented this opportunity and an AVP job at a larger credit union. So, safe road, risky road. And my dad told me to take the safe road. I took the risky road. We never listen to our parents, of course. But I took the risky road because there was no way I could, I couldn't screw up any more than it already was. There was no uh, downdraft to the opportunity. Even if I got to just wear the title for six months and then moved on to something else, it would have been a good career opportunity for me at 27 years old. It turned into home. Once you get on that, something like that, where you know, we started at like 2.9% capital and $11 million, I always say we should have been taken out to the back and shot in the pasture long before I got there. And just that constant brand building, constant rebuilding, focusing on it, it honed our senses in a way that it stopped just being a job and it became something that's a passion and a love and all that sort of stuff.
1: What was going on at the credit union when you took over?
2: So it all had happened five years. Um, no, 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 sorry. Uh, seven years earlier. So we have other rural communities around our rural community. That's where the Craig was originally housed in a community called Trona, California. And uh, you know, bad players, poor decisions, you know, something that would have made a 1996 CU times headline. But in today's, you know, a little rinky-dink credit, it wouldn't matter. But this was all before PCA. So PCA wasn't regulation yet until January 1, 2000. So what happened was capital got drained to bad players, trade union, proposed mergers, everything else. The membership votes down the merger. Directors leave. This happens. Goes through two or three interim managers. I mean, you know, I always say good enough for a, a short novel, Not enough for a major motion picture, but um, at that point, they had been on a recovery or slight recovery, if you want to call it that. And then they got hit with another $600,000 wire fraud that would have depleted capital to a negative number. The existing CEO at that time took a different job, honestly couldn't blame her. I understand the circumstances. And it was, you know, hey, you got a chance of pulling this off. You have insurance, you've got the FBI involved, you got all the, here's all the crud. And if you can somehow get this flushed, then you can write your own ticket for a while. That's how we went from 27-year-old CEO to 17 years and 20 years of the business mayor. It was that
1: trudge through the sewer. What did you do to turn it around?
2: I really think that it was about understanding what the credit union movement is to people. I really do. Being a second gen, I grew up around credit unions. I bled it. I tasted it. I, I remember going to telephone employees credit union and being there with my dad. And I remember doing all these things way back when. And I remember that the spirit that always existed was that we weren't in a business that was about making money. We were in a business about changing people's lives. What happened was I got here with all that you know, I'm going to put risk rating. I'm going to do this. I'm going to, I mean, I, I, I still was telling my staff, they never believed me, but I signed a contract to buy the building we're in right now, the land on my first day on the job. The NCOA auditor waiting for me. And I had the greatest epiphany of my career on the same day because I've got a really seasoned team. My average seniority is over eight and a half years on my team. So, people have been with me for a long time. They've worked with me. They've grown with me. They've seen the credit union grow. They've seen the passion's been ignited. We have people that have worked in community organizations, volunteer groups, you name it. We'll encourage them to get involved in the community in that way. And that type of credit union model, when you are a small credit union in a rural area, I have a Navy in my backyard and I've got another $700 million credit union in my backyard. I've got two banks in my backyard and a community bank in my backyard. You know, I had to find what that niche was and then hold on to it. And that's what is, I I really believe it's the passion of what the credit union model, the old credit union, man. our job is to serve members and to really try and change and
1: make their lives better. So looking back, as you were trying to build up your capital, I'm sure you tried a lot of different things. Do you remember like what worked and what didn't? We literally were within like a quarter of hitting 7%
2: when 09 hit. And it was like, click, 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 And you're just sliding backwards. And that was that 9, 10, and 11. And that's what I would say. Probably the biggest lesson I learned is you cannot entirely predict the circumstances under which you are going to get there. But your focus has to be on how you're going to get there rather than when. And for us, that how was basic organics. We're not going to try and cut to get there. We're not going to try to spend money out of the shoot to grow to get there because net worth is such a balance between both your asset growth and your income growth that it organically needs to be part of your structure, your branding, your niche this constant evolution of improvement rather than I'm going to pick one thing and this is going to solve everything. We danced 5% for so long. I mean, we, we danced between this five and six margin for four or five years or something like that because we were growing. And our growth was always outpacing our income. So we couldn't ever just make that little bit. And then came along good economic surges in the late 2000s plus we had reached an efficiency of scale in terms of investment and in infrastructure and core systems and in all those things that click, 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 click. and then it was like, "Oh yeah, they found the broken link and the roller coaster just took off. We've had a one-plus ROA now for the last four years. In the last two years over this COVID period, our credit union has grown 17 million dollars in assets. So for us, that's I mean, you're talking upwards of 60 percent growth in a 15, 18-month period. And we've only lost relative to capital about 11 points in terms of straight capital. So we had finally gotten to that momentum shift where income was pacing with our growth. And I think that's probably the biggest thing that I tell people when I give them advice on net worth is don't get yourself so focused on the number that you forget what you're trying to do in your mission.
0: Thanks for listening to the CUNA News Podcast. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google
1: Podcasts, and Stitcher Radio.